Um, hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> I, I want to, before I get into my message this morning, I want to share a little bit about something that I'm very excited about and our staff is very excited about called GrowTrack. Uh, and I have some slides I want to show you. So these are just basically a series of classes that we're going to repeat all throughout the year. And the idea is that how could we condense into four different classes what we feel like are some of the most important things to understand as far as being what being Christian means. And so it starts all with the first class, and that's about our, when we begin to believe in Christ. How do we grow in our faith? Uh, what practical tools do we need to, to go from point A to point B and to get closer to Jesus and to grow in our relationship with God? And so that's what we're going to talk about in that first class, and Brad Smith is going to be teaching that. It actually starts next Sunday, and so if you're interested in any of these classes, again, it's a series, so you want to go through all of them if you do it. I start next Sunday, and it's going to be during this 9 o'clock hour, and then in March we're going to do it at the uh, 10.30 hour for, uh, for people for flexibility purposes. So the first class is about spiritual discipline. It's a great class. The second class is about belonging and the importance of the local church. And if you're new, this is really going to be encouraging to you because it's going to help give you a pathway to get involved in the church and, and what our church is all about, what, what it means to be a member of the church and what um, we value as a church, a local body. And I think this is great for people that have been around for a long time too, just to refresh our memory. And what are we supposed to be about as the church? And then the third class, and that's John's going to teach that class, the third class is Become, and it's all about our spiritual gifts and how God has wired us, and uh, we're going to take you through a process together. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be teaching that class. Uh, we're going to talk about our gifts, how we use our gifts, what spiritual gifts are in the scriptures, and uh, some of you maybe have done this before. Maybe you've taken a spiritual gifts assessment. Maybe it's been a long time. I just encourage you to jump in because it's going to be great. You're going to learn some things about yourself. Uh, you're going to learn about maybe some things that God's put in you that you didn't realize was even there. So I'm excited about that. That's the third class. class is build. It's all about living like Jesus. So what are those qualities that Jesus possessed that we need to live like? And how do we, get, how do we uh, grow in those areas? And, and how do we live like Jesus? And it's just living out the things that we know. And it's going to be, uh, that class is going to be taught by Brad Smith as well. So I just want to invite you to be a part of these classes. You know, you can come to the nine, go to class, and then come to service. That'd be awesome. Or next, maybe next month you want to go uh, come here because you love first service. It's the fun bunch, right, Clay? And then next next month uh, you can go to you can come to the fun bunch and you can go to your class after that. So we just want to give you options and hopefully you'll get involved. You can sign up a myriad of different ways. You can talk to me about it. I can put you on the list. You can talk to John or any of the staff. You can put on your communication card. You'd like to be involved. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can you go online on our website and sign up as well. So. All right, there you go. You're all invited to be a part of it. It's going to be great. So you can choose a lot of things in your life, but you can't choose your parents. How many of you realize that's true? I'm glad that uh, I have the parents that I have. But you know, growing up was not always easy. In fact, when I was four years old, my parents split. My parents divorced. And my dad lived in town for a year, and then he moved away. So I didn't get to see him as often. He moved to another state. And so I was, well, a disobedient kid. Let's put it that way. Uh, I got in trouble a lot when I was four, five, and six years old. And my mom was raising me pretty much by herself during those years. And I remember when I would get in trouble, I knew I was in trouble, I would just take off running. And she would just chase me around the house. She'd yell, come on, Brian, come here, come here. And I would just run. I'd go outside and run around the house. I mean, I was just, I was just a naughty kid. 
Uh, I remember when I was five, I hated school so much. I was in first grade. I hated school so much that I would literally hang on to the door frames or hang on to the couch as my mom literally drug me out, physically drug me out the front door to put me in the car to go to school. After a couple days, she couldn't do it. And so she called uh, a gentleman in our church who came over, and he was strong enough to literally pry me out of the house and take me to school. And that's how much I hated school. I was only five years old. Obviously, I was struggling with things deeper than I could understand at that age with my parents splitting. And, and uh, when I was six, my uh, mom got married to a high school running back star in our city. He was like this you know, muscle-bound black belt and karate dude, and his arms were huge. And I'm like, oh boy, the jig is up, man. I'm in trouble now, and this guy is not going to take anything from me. And, uh, and so I learned right away that I couldn't get away with stuff. Now, I will say this. He was a man of God. He disciplined me. Did he spank me? Yes. Did I deserve it? Yes. Do I advocate spanking? Well, you know, you got to make that decision on your own. It worked for me because I was a little alien, and I needed somebody to step in and discipline me. And that's what he did, and he did it in a loving way. In fact, every time he spanked me, he'd come in the room afterwards and he'd say, Brian, I want you to know I love you. I didn't do that out of anger. I did that out of love for you. Now it's hard enough to be a parent, right? But to come into a situation as a stepfather in that situation, and the guy did an incredible job. And I'm here today because of the investment that he put into my life and my mom. My mom survived me for those years. Now by the time I was a teenager, I was a pretty good kid. Actually, I was going to church, and I was really involved in my youth group, and, and uh, I, I, I was a pretty compliant kid. I got decent grades. I never got into too much trouble. And, but I had a tendency to cut corners, to compromise. And my parents knew this about me, and they would always kind of keep an eye on that because they saw when things got tough, Brian would cut corners. When things got tough, he would compromise in certain areas. And they knew it was going to be detrimental to my future. And so they set a standard. They say, no, this is the standard. You've got to meet the standard. And reluctantly, not do- it wasn't domineering. It wasn't controlling. They didn't relish in the opportunity to correct me, but they instilled a standard in our household as Christ followers, they understood that their responsibility was to guide me and help me not to compromise in these areas. And it was a, it was a good thing for me. I needed that. And I think it's kind of similar to what Jesus was dealing with with these churches. You know, he, he's, he's dealing with these churches in Revelation. There's a framework that we see for a lot of these letters to the churches in Revelation. And in this Overcomer series that we're in, we've been looking at this key verse every week. And I want to read it to you again. It's John 16, 33. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's Jesus speaking. And the heart of the series is the fact that we can be overcomers, that we can have victory, that we can share in the victory that Jesus had as his church. And so today, I want to look at the church in Pergamum and unpack the words from Jesus that John sent to the church. And we find those in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. This is a reference to Jesus. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So let's talk about Pergamum for a moment. Geographically, Pergamum was located in modern-day Turkey. It's about 70 miles north of Smyrna, which we talked about last week, and John talked about. About 200,000 people lived in Pergamum. And it was not, it was not a small city, and, and they were uh, known to have one of the great ancient libraries in the world. In fact, um, the word parchment, we get the word parchment from Pergamum. And so that's kind of what it's known for. Now, sociologically, Pergamum uh, was very paganistic. And there were four patron deities that they worshipped in Pergamum. Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and uh, Asclepius. Those are the four gods. And each of those gods had a temple in order to worship there. The altar they built for Zeus actually was, one of, was a marvel. In fact, it was actually known as one of the seven wonders of the world of the time. And if you look at this picture, you can see this is kind of an artist's rendering of what it looked like in Pergamum. And you can see on the left this big structure and this smoke billowing up from the altar. That's the altar of Zeus. And, and this was sort of their town. This is what life was like for people in Pergamum. Pa paganism was a way of life. There was a sense of pride that they had these beautiful structures so that they could worship these pagan gods. And you were expected to Worship these gods if you lived in Pergamum. So this letter is written to a small community of uh, Christian people there in Pergamum that had been established, and they were in this tension of trying to uphold their convictions and yet live in a world that they're living in, bumping up against the cultural norms that contradicted their convictions. Imagine what that would be like. And so John pens these words from Jesus that he receives in a vision for the church, and Jesus, like a great parent, wants to help his church grow. He wants to help his church be effective. But there are some issues to deal with. There's some discipline to hand out. There's some compromise that needs to be dealt with. And in this letter, we see that his approach was pretty similar to how my parents approached their discipline of me when I needed it. And they start with affirmation. A lot of these letters start with affirmation. If you're taking notes, that's the first A word in your notes. Up at the top, affirmation. Revelation 2.13 says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So Jesus is saying, look, I see the good things you're doing. Actually, that's great what you're doing. I see you're still living for me despite everything that's going on in your city. And Jesus affirms them in a huge way. Because, you know, do you know that affirmation is actually scientifically proven to reprogram our uh, subconscious mind? And positive reinforcement is one of the best things to do with, as a parent, as a coach. Positive reinforcement 
pays off big as far as dividends go when you're talking about trying to get people to uh, step up to a standard. And affirmation makes us also feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? I mean, we all need affirmation at some point. We all need affirmation. And, and there's a young man who was a basketball player in the late 80s. And uh, he wanted to go to this prestigious summer basketball camp. Now, this camp was attended by the likes of Wilt Chamberlain and his father, who was also an NBA player at one point. So he's very excited to prove himself as a young man. And he went to this camp, or this, uh, this summer league, and he played in all these games. And he did not score a single point, not a free throw, not a layup, not a single shot that he took went in the whole basketball league. And he was pretty frustrated about it. He came home to his dad, and he, he cried about it. And he lamented to his dad, Dad, I didn't score a single point in this whole league. And his dad looked at him and he said, Son, if you score 100 or if you don't score a single point, I will love you the same. Affirmation. Kobe Bryant still talks about that moment when his dad affirmed him. He looked him in the eye in that moment of just frustration and gave him positive affirmation. It doesn't matter. I still love you. And he still talks about that today, how that was a, a motivating factor in his life. Now he's, the top, he's in the top three. Well, not anymore. I think LeBron James passed him last night. So he's four now, but that's not too shabby. In the NBA all-time history, what a scoring you know, phenomena he was. But that's what positive affirmation do. Now, I'm not saying positive affirmation is going to make you into a scoring champ, okay? But positive affirmation can move you to greater and bigger things. And this is what Jesus is giving to the church at Pergamum. He's instilling confidence in them in the midst of a very tough situation. I mean, could you imagine living in Pergamum and getting this letter? You have all these things, all this pagan worship going on around you. And your brother in Christ, Antipas, was just killed for his faith. And you're thinking, am I next? And you get this letter from Jesus, the words of Jesus that says, hey, I see you. I see that you're doing a good thing. Keep it going. Don't give up. It would have been a huge boost in their confidence. I mean, any good coach or parent or anybody knows the sandwich approach to correction, right? You start with affirmation, and you give that critical piece, and you end with affirmation. Well, Jesus understood that a long time ago, and that's what he started with. He started with affirmation. The second thing we go on to is the accountability. That's the second A in your notes, accountability. Jesus knows they're in a tough situation, but in order for them to grow in their faith and to make it, he's got to hold them accountable to a standard. Now, this is the part that we don't love. We love affirmation because it makes us feel good about ourselves. We don't always love accountability, and correction doesn't feel good. You know what I'm talking about, right? It doesn't feel so good when somebody tells you you're not doing something right. Revelation 2.14, this was the accountability part. Jesus says, There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now let's talk about these two. First of all, Balaam. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers in the Old Testament. Balaam was a Midianite who had this power to bless and to curse. And he tried to curse the Israelites, but he couldn't do it. And so 
uh, he conspired with Balak. Balak was a Moabite king who wanted to defeat Israel. And their plan was not to curse them, but to entice them into sin. And there's two ways they did that. One, they enticed them into to eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And they had the women of their, the Midianite women intermarry with the men in order to entice them into sexual immorality and impurity and pagan and all these things that they were into. And so uh, this, is, this is what was going on in the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, those teachings were anything but Christ-like. And the two things that they did wrong, sexual immorality and eating of meat sacrificed to animals, those were two of the three things in the moral code that you just didn't do. Okay, so there's that. And then the Nicolaitans. Now, we're not sure exactly who the Nicolaitans are. We really don't know. Scholars don't agree. But we know that their teachings and their practices were not lining up or consistent with the standard that God had for his church. And so these guys were dabbling, Pergamum. They were dabbling, these Christians, in these different areas they shouldn't have been messing around with. And there was some real tension there because uh, they're, they're coming up against these, these teachings and they're kind of trying to compromise. They want to please their neighbors and friends, but at the same time, they're still trying to hold on to the things of God. And a lot of times we find ourselves in that situation too, don't we, as a culture? We kind of give in a little bit here. It's like, well, I guess it's okay to, to do this or accept this or believe this. And, and yeah, but we're still hanging on to what Jesus says. And there's all these influences that bombard us, that do not line up with the Word of God. And we've got to be careful as believers to not add or subtract to what God's Word says. Because, but there's huge pressure, isn't there, to fall in line. There's huge pressure. The church has got to wrestle with these big questions of our day. How do I reflect Jesus in my community when we live in this charged political landscape that we live in. I mean, there's like this dividing line. It's us against them and them against us, and people are shouting at each other about this and that. Politically, it's just not a great scenario, is it? And we find ourselves kind of wanting to love people, but yet judge and all this stuff. It's hard. How do I stay true to my faith when I know that participating in something is questionable, but it's expected, and if I don't do it, it might have a negative impact on my career. I've seen this happen, many examples I could share with you, about the pressure people feel to do things or to give in to things. And if they don't, it might affect their career. How do I push beyond the cultural labels and boundaries of affirming and non-affirming and love and welcome people that live around us that are gay or are struggling with with uh, these different things. How do, we, how do we do that? These are real tensions. These are questions, conversations that I've had with different people at different times, and the church needs to have these conversations. And these tensions are not much different than what they were experiencing in Pergamum. They were wrestling with different things. They were trying to love God. They were trying to love their Gentile neighbors and include those into their community who wanted to follow Christ, yet they weren't doing it the right way. They were compromising. And things were getting complicated. Now, think about this. Not eating meat. I, I don't know. I, I can't ever see myself being a vegetarian. And bless you if you're going to be a vegetarian. That's wonderful. Go for it. No judgment here. I think it's great. But for me, I just, I don't know. I just got to have a steak once in a while. And I can't imagine what it would be like 
for these people who have, their diet would have to completely change because all the meat that was sold in the market in Pergamum was meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's all they had. Um, and your options were limited. And also, people were doing whatever with whoever they wanted to sexually, and immorality was rampant in this culture. And frankly, has a lot really changed? Still hard to live for God in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to the church. So the Christians in Pergamum had this attitude, well, I'm just going to fit in. You know, I don't want to rock the boat too much. It's easy to compromise a little bit when you don't know what to say or, or what to do with people living in the world and around you. And, and we live in this world that pits groups against one another. If you vote this way, you must think like this. You're sympathetic to this. Then you must be this. And sometimes our convictions as Christ followers seem inconvenient or even irrelevant. And it's just easier to swim with the current instead of against the current. This week I was reading an article about a podcast that Aaron Rodgers did. Aaron Rodgers, of course, the losing quarterback in the NFC Championship to my 49ers. Sorry, John. I don't want to pick on Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers grew up in like similar area to me. I grew up in Chico area, and I'm not, I don't know Aaron Rodgers. He's not my friend. I respect him as a quarterback. He's a fantastic quarterback, and I love watching him play. But he was on a podcast this week, and he's dating Danica Patrick, and um, the, the race car driver. And he's talking about religion, and the subject comes up. Now, Aaron was raised in a Christian home, and he's rejected some of those things. And now, uh, he's, of course, he's famous and, and rich and a great quarterback. But uh, he was saying, you know what? I think there's no way I could believe in a God that would send someone to hell. That's what he said. No way. There's so many things wrong with that statement. And it just breaks my heart because I think if that's the reason why Aaron Rodgers is not serving Christ, I would be really surprised. I doubt it. It's a smokescreen. But at the same time, it frustrates me as a Christian, as a pastor, because I think here's someone who has been raised to believe in God and, and, and at some point had an experience with God and now he's not living for God and now he's frustrated and and I don't believe God sends people to hell. I believe people make a choice. I believe God is a loving God. And in fact, we, we don't make the rules. God does. So we, we, we can't decide. We don't know. We trust in God. But at the same time, it's easy to shake your head and say, yeah, you're right. Man, how could God do that? God's a loving God. How could he allow hell? And it's easy to con start to convince yourself that that might be true. This is just one example of many that we could see in our, our culture. And a lot of times, we only follow God to the point of our convenience. And when things threaten our comfort level, do we just go with the flow culturally? Have we elevated our comfort above our calling? Jesus didn't tell his disciples, they will know you're my followers if you do what the culture does. He didn't say, they will know you're my followers if you accommodate what makes you and others feel comfortable. Jesus didn't say, you will know you're my followers. They will know if you radically defend your faith at every point. He didn't say those things. What did he say? He says, they'll know you're my followers because of your, what? Love. 
because of your love. Real love, sacrificial love. It costs us something. But it's easier and cheaper to compromise. You know, I like a good deal, and sometimes compromise just looks like a good deal, but it doesn't lead us down the path that Jesus wants us to go. So how do we love people that we really don't like? Come on, it's getting real in here right now. How do we love when it's challenging or when we're misunderstood? See, those are real tensions, and Jesus is calling his church to accountability. He affirms them, but he also says, look, guys, you can't compromise. Hold to what we've been talking about. Hold to your convictions. And then the third A is action. Action. Jesus gives this church a clear action step to correct their course. Revelation 2.16 says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. That sounds like a fun word, doesn't it? That's great, Jesus. We love that word, don't we? Let me see if I can help you think about the word repent a little bit differently. So the word repent in the Greek is metano, which literally means to change one's mind. A changed mind equals a change in direction. And the only way you can change your mind is when you come to the realization that what you're doing isn't good and you need to make an adjustment. We do this all the time as human beings. We don't call it repentance, right? But that's what it is. It could, it could happen because of a consequence, something you've seen or some knowledge that you've gained. You ever changed your diet before? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. Because usually people change their diet because of some circumstance that they find themselves in. That's not good. It could be something that's causing them to feel they need to eat better. Sorry about this microphone. I don't know what's going on. It's driving me crazy, though. My wife, Kim, was um, pregnant with our first child, Carter, and she was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And if you know what that is, it's just a, it's a point where she just while she's pregnant, she's going to struggle with her blood sugars spiking and, and getting too low. So she had to change her complete diet. She was already eating a little bit differently because she was pregnant. Now she's changing even more checking her blood sugar, doing all this stuff. And, and uh, there was a situation that she found herself in that because she wanted to do the right thing, because she wanted to make sure we had a healthy baby that was born, she had to make some serious changes to her diet. And she had to repent <laughs> in a way. She had to repent and change her mind, and that meant that she was going to change her actions. And because of this health challenge... And what she learned about her body, she changed her mind about her food and what she was consuming. And so repentance means changing our mind. And, and our minds move us to changing our actions. And so it reminds me of the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, change your form, go in a different direction. How do you do that? It starts by changing your mind. By renewing your mind. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. I love the Phillips translation of this verse. It says, Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And the world wants to squeeze us. 
into its mold, doesn't it? Into its beliefs, into its way of doing things. That's why we need to regularly recognize what's wrong, what's bad, and make an active effort to change by living in our lives a different way, literally changing our course. And it's not easy because many times that puts us against the grain of our culture. Jesus calls us to love people when they least expect it and when they least deserve it. And we don't do things out of selfish ambition, but we look first to the needs of others. We forgive people. We love them, even when they're not sorry. We still love them. Who feels like loving people when they're not sorry and they don't care? Not very many people do. It's not easy. It's not natural. No one responds naturally that way. It doesn't make sense. It's not even rational. But in a transformed mind by God's Spirit, it's not subject to the flesh, but it's connected to the Spirit that produces an ongoing renewal. Because again, there are just some days that I don't feel like doing it. So why? How can I do it? I have to get up in the morning and I've got to renew my mind. Action. It's essential. It's what moves us in the right direction. So to wrap up this morning, in the church of Pergamum, Jesus says these final words in Revelation 2. He says, whoever has ears, verse 17, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. So let's recap real quickly. Jesus affirms. He calls us to accountability. He gives us a proper action step. And then he tells us what's attainable. That's the final A. What's attainable? If we do these things, victory is attainable. If we do these things, overcoming is attainable. It's all about our posture. Are we posturing ourselves? Are we renewing our mind? Are we preparing ourselves for what we're going to face, being guided by the Spirit? How do we do that? It starts with prayer, doesn't it? I love what Pastor Mark Batterson says. Prayer is the difference between the best you can do and the best God can do. I mean, there's a pretty big gap between those two things, right? Like a massive gap. The Holy Spirit that God has given us, according to Jesus, will guide us into all truth. And prayer allows us to get in tune with the Holy Spirit so that he can guide us into all truth. How do we know that we're not compromising? How do we know that we're not slipping away? We're in tune with the Spirit of God. We're talking to him. We're renewing our mind on a daily basis. And then Jesus says, if you do that, I will give you the hidden manna. Now, this was a reference to the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness, and God provided manna. It was just this food that came out of nowhere, right? It was hidden, and all of a sudden it was there. And they didn't know where it came from. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you follow me, I will provide for you. I will give you sustenance. I will feed you. I will give you the things that you need, even though you don't see it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of you. And then he says, I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. Now, in civic elections, black stones were no votes. White stones were yes votes. So he's saying, I'm going to say yes. There's going to be victory. There's going to be overcoming happening. There's going to be good things. Yes. I'm not only going to give you the hidden manna. I'm not only going to feed you and give you sustenance, but I will give you victory with your name on it. And Jesus is saying, look, I see you. You're doing some good stuff, okay? You're headed in the right direction, but there are some things that need to be adjusted. 
and you're prioritizing momentary comfort over the calling that I have for you. And if you would just change your mind and your direction and go in the way that I'm calling you, there's victory for you, and I'll give you what you need to overcome. So maybe you're in a tough situation today. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an environment that you find yourself in. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, go in a different direction. If he's speaking that to you today, listen, many times we say, well, what about this, Jesus? Or, or I, I need this. Or what's going to happen with this? And Jesus is saying, look, I got the hidden manna for you. I'm av- it's available. I will give you the victory with your name on it. You will be an overcomer if you trust in me. Are you willing to trust in Jesus today? Would you bow your heads? with me this morning. Jesus, thank you for this challenge. It's a difficult challenge, one certainly that I personally struggle with at times as I try to live in a world that's increasingly anti-gospel, anti-Bible, compromise is rampant in our culture, even fellow believers in Christ are compromising so that they can fit in with the culture. Lord, this is tough stuff, and you laid it out for the church in Pergamum. And today we are reminded how important it is to hold true to the Word of God to the convictions and the standards that we see. And to know that even though we may not understand everything, that we can trust you. And if you're asking, Lord, us to do something specific or to change our minds about something or change our direction, would you let us know right now, Lord, what that is? In Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment, church. If you're here today and you would like to give your life to Jesus, I would say that's the best decision you could ever make. When I was 16 years old, I got serious about my relationship with Jesus and my life was never the same. God did incredible work in me. I have peace. I have love. And it's not because of who I am. It's because of who he is in me. Jesus wants to come into your life today. He wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants to bring hope, life, and love to you as well. Maybe you're here today and you say, I don't know Jesus, but I want to I follow him. I want to invite him into my life. I want him to be Lord of my life. I just want to give you an opportunity if you're here. Anyone here today say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. I want Jesus to be number one. Anybody else? I want Jesus to be the leader of my life. Come on, anybody else say maybe for the first time? Okay. Maybe you're here today and you just say, hey, there's some areas in my life that perhaps I've been compromising a little bit. And I need to repent. And that that word repent means to change my mind. And I believe that that changing my mind will help change my direction. And so today, you would say, Brian, I want to repent. I want to change my mind about some things that I've been wrong about and recognize that Jesus is calling me to a standard that's 
that I haven't quite hit in some areas. And I want to trust him. And I want to follow him. And I, want to, I don't want to compromise. I don't want to give my, these things to him and, and repent of these things. If that's you today with no one looking around, would you lift your hand and say, would you pray for me? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I see those hands, guys. Jesus, thank you for the honesty in this room, for the fact that, Lord, none of us are perfect, yet we're all forgiven when we lay our lives down for you, Jesus. And you come in and do a perfect work in our heart. So I pray that you would just move in these lives today, these that have raised their hands, Lord, and just said, I, I'm compromising in some areas. Lord, help them to change their mind and change their direction today. And they would hold true the convictions that they have and not necessarily live a life of trying to tell everybody the truth and that they're wrong and they're right. But Lord, there would be love that flows from them. Love that's attractive. Love that builds instead of tears down. Your love, Jesus. Let it be flowing through all of us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Worship team, lead us.